Okay, we are in our fifth cycle here in the book of Hosea. Israel's idolatry overcome. This is chapter 11, verse 12, all the way through the end of the book there in 14.9. So Israel's idolatry overcome. Um, the first section again is, is judgment. This judgment section is going to run from chapter 11.12 down through 13.16. And what we're going to see here is Israel's idolatry incites God's wrath. Israel's idolatry incites God's wrath. Uh, This is the final round of of indictments against Israel for their immorality, their idolatry, their injustice, and their spiritual adultery against Him. And as we do this last section, once again, remember the banner that hangs over this. This is in the context of, of the picture that God has given of of Hosea and Gomer, and of Gomer leaving um, Hosea, who had been faithful uh, to her and provided for her and cared for her, that she steps out chasing after other lovers, and that it has destroyed her. And God woos her back. Hosea woos Gomer back and reconciles. And this is what God is aiming to do with Israel, that He is wooing her back, even though she's going to be in the wilderness, will call her heart to Himself. As we look through this judgment section, we've got a few kind of sub, subcategories as we have in the other ones. So we've got th- three of them here. We're going to see in 11.12 through uh, 12.2, just a short little section here, that unfaithfulness abounds. Unfaithfulness abounds. Verse 12, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. The ESV reads, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. 12.1, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. So again, Ephraim has become like her idols. They are wicked. She has become wicked. She's a, a, a liar like them. says, lies are all around me. Deceit is what marks them. So when you talk to them, you don't know what you're really getting, whether you're really getting truth or you're getting lies. This is going to lead them to, to madness, to corruption, to injustice. So this unfaithfulness is abounding. Now we have, um, oh, which, one other thing before we get into this translation note. In verse 12, you're going to notice here, it speaks about uh, uh, this, this wind, this east wind. He's speaking about this hot blast of, of air that would come off the wilderness of, of the desert. That instead of turning to God, who has blessed them with tender love, they're turning to Egypt and Assyria. That's just this, this hot wind, that there's really nothing there that's going to give them life. Now, with this unfaithfulness abounding, one of the questions you might have, if, you have, if you're reading the ESV or, or most translations, you're going to notice there in uh, chapter 11, verse 12, that it reads, But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. And then in verse 2 of chapter 12, the Lord has an indictment against Judah. So it's like he says, Judah's faithful, Judah's a loser. Judah's, and it's like he just switches. What, what's happening here? Well... There is, there is a trans, translation consideration here. Um, 
So there's two ways to translate chapter 11, verse 12. He's either giving a positive word about Judah, or he's giving a negative word about Judah. So the ESV, the translation that I've been using, uh, translates it positively. That Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. This would highlight, if this is the correct translation, the interpretation would be this. That it highlights the fact that Judah is distinct from Israel. uh, That they have not gone as far in their sin as Israel has gone. um, Which was true at this time. But what he's saying there in verse 2 is highlighting, but there's weeds in the garden in your vineyard as well. And going to be highlighting the fact that there is abiding sin that needs to be dealt with. That's still true. I'm not sure that's the best translation. Um, The other way to translate these words is, so there's no textual variance. The words are there in Hebrew. It's just, it's how do you understand what they mean. So the NIV, partially, and the message, uh, translate it negatively. So the word for God there is the word El, which can be used of God, but it can also be used of El, the Canaanite God. And the Holy One, um, does anybody have a CSV? Anybody have the Christian Standard Bible? The one the Baptist put out? No. Um, It translates it, Holy Ones. It's because it's actually a plural So it says the Holy One, it actually says Holy Ones, which some would say, say, well, he's talking about plurality of majesty um, and and talking about God in that way. Well, if if we go with chapter 11, verse 12 being a negative thing, here's another translation. Judah walks with El, the Canaanite God, and is faithful to the Holy Ones meaning El's divine courts and all of the other gods who are with him. Which I think is actually the, the right way to take it. That he's, he's indicting Judah as well. So this whole time, the message has been toward Israel, but now he's given a shot to Judah. And Judah is supposed to see what's about to happen to Israel, the northern kingdom, and they're supposed to straighten up and, get, and repent so it doesn't happen to them as well. So I'm going to read to you the message trans or the message's rendering of 11:12. Ephraim tells lies right and left. Not a word of Israel can be trusted. Judah meanwhile is no better addicted to cheap gods. I think the message actually captures it correctly here. That he's speaking negatively about Judah and he's indicting Judah as well. I think it seems to be a a better translation. That though Israel was the focus of Hosea's message and Judah was not enslaved yet, they also were looking to idols. The same seeds of wickedness were in Judah's heart, as other prophets will will point out. And destruction is going to come for them in the same way that it's going to come for the northern kingdom if they don't repent. So, anybody have a question about that before I just move on since that's a, a thing? No? I think either way you take it, there's, there's yeah, legitimate translations that are interpretations for either of those that, that make sense. So, All right, so unfaithfulness abounds, I think, in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and God is calling everybody to see it and to turn from it. Now, verse 3, chapter 12, verse 3 through 14, unfaithfulness is going to be addressed. 
unfaithfulness is going to be addressed. And what he's going to do is he's going to hearken back their memory to, to Jacob. And they're going to say, you need to learn something from Jacob. So in the, in the womb, he, speaking of Jacob, took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. So what, what marked Jacob's early life? How did he try to get how did he try to get the blessing? Yeah, through deception. He was a lion deceiving trickster. He is just, as Shylin said in one of his new songs, he was just all around shady. And he was. Jacob was a, sh- a shady character. You couldn't trust him. But then something happened that altered his life. He had an encounter at Bethel, uh, and he wrestled here, the, uh, it says, with an angel, with, 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 with representing God. God. He met with God there. And what happened in that, that meeting? He, he was wrestling with, with, with this, this man who appears, and what does... Jacob say to him, he says, yeah, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And then what does God say to him? What's your name? Because God, God will give the blessing, but it's not going to come through deceit anymore. He's got to be honest. Take off your costume trying to deceive your blind daddy because I'm not blind. I see everything. I'm not going to deal with you in deceitfulness. What's your name? And he says, Jacob. And he prevailed. But then forever after that, do you remember? He walked with a limp because he had popped out his hip socket. He got the Bo Jackson injury. Popped out his hip. And forever after that, he's limping, which was actually the best thing that ever happened to him because he got broken. And in his woundedness, he learned how to relate to God. God's saying to the nation of Israel, y'all need to look at Jacob because that's what is going to happen. You're about to be broken. You're about to wrestle and you're going to lose. But it's going to produce a new kind of life in you afterwards if you respond rightly. Verse 6 though, so you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. So even there, Rebecca, you can see he's, he's still calling out. He wants them to do this. He desires this. We see these little rays of light that he wants them to repent. But instead of turning from their sin, they lean further in. Verse 7, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. He's likening Israel to being deceitful like Jacob used to be. They're like, a, they're like a crooked business owner. So in these days, if you had a, in the marketplace, if you're going to buy some figs from somebody, you'd have balances, right? And you'd put different weights on the balances, and it would put it out, and then you'd put the figs on there, and it would tell you how much the figs weighed, and then, you would, um, then you'd, you'd, you'd exchange goods or, or, or currency. Well, one of the things the Lord says he hates throughout the Proverbs and the prophets is what? The Lord hates, yep, specifically he says, I hate crooked balances. 
I hate deceitful balances. What he's talking about is people who yeah, put up these balances to make it look like these are heavier weights and they're charging people more. He's saying you're deceitful. And, and, and what do they think about it all? What, what, what do, they, what do they, they think? They're kind of patting themselves on the back there in verse 8. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. They think they're getting away with it. They think that nobody notices because, you know, this poor little widow who's come up with a, with a little bit of money and bought some figs so that she can live, and he's made a couple extra dollars off of it. And she walks away, and he's like, got it. The Lord's like, no, it got you. It's consuming you, your deceit, your lies. You think you're getting all this prosperity. You think it's because of blessing, but it's actually a curse. You're being given over to it, and you're, you're deceived. God says, I see you, and I will hold you accountable, verse 9. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will make again you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. God says, it was I who spoke to you. Verse 11, their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. In these days, what you would do is you would, when you plowed a field, um, you would take out the rocks and you would just set them over there as, as uh as piles. So if you're, if you're cleaning out a, a field, you just got rocks, pile, piles of rocks everywhere. He says that's what the, the, the nation looks like with all your altars multiplied everywhere. You just got all these rocks piled up to these, these false gods. When he's saying here about them dwelling in the tents, he's basically saying you're going to get kicked out of the land. You're going to be exiles again. You're going to be, you're going to be out camping. You're not going to be in your houses because you're going to be sent out. Verse 12, Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife uh, there Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, Moses, uh, it's Moses, the Lord brought Israel, the whole nation, up from Egypt. By a prophet he was guarded. What he does here, again, is he gives these little snippets of a history lesson, looking back to Israel's, Israel's past. Uh, you started off with one man and one woman shepherding a bunch of sheep. But how are you end up? You end up a whole nation, a full nation, with Moses leading you out like a shepherd. God says, it was I who did that for you. I took you from being small. I made you a great nation. I'm the one who's blessed you. I'm the one who's provided for you. I'm the one who's been good for you. But you just keep stacking up altars of false gods. They've turned away from God with ingratitude. This is one of the underlying things through this whole section, is the sin of ingratitude. They take what God has given and it doesn't move them to thankfulness. It just moves them to more grumbling and more getting. You just need more, 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 more. Rather than being humbled and overwhelmed by the fact that God has cared for them and God has loved them. And that should produce in us holiness and love for God. Well, verse 14, Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and he will pay him for his disgraceful deeds. Rather than Ephraim being forgiven, they're going to stand with blood on their hands, guilty as charged. God addresses their unfaithfulness. Well, now in chapter 13, we're going to get this last section of judgment in the book where we're going to see their unfaithfulness will be eliminated. God's final word here about judgment, it is going to be certain. 
It is going to be swift, um, and it is going to be terrifying. Verse 1, chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves uh, metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver of all of them, the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss the calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. What he's saying here is that God has shown them mercy. He has has given mercy to Ephraim. He's exalted them. But rather than growing humble, they grew proud and perverse. The kissing the calves is another way to speak about worshiping. And they've, they've even gone to the grotesque practice of sacrificing their own children, which is what the god Molech would, would require. You would come and you would sacrifice your own children to please the gods. So it's, it's like Israel has lost their mind. They're, they're, they're offering up the children... I mean, when you think back to the beginning of their, their nation, Abraham longed and waited 25 years for God to just give a child. It was going to be so precious. It would be the one through whom the whole nation would come. And now they've gotten to the place where they've turned to false gods and offering up their children, kissing calves and g- going after these, these golden idols who are just nothings. They'd be swept away just like a mist. Verse 4, but I am the God, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full, and their hearts were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. Again, he reminds them of their history. I saved you. Nobody else brought you, nobody else did plagues for you. Nobody else split red seas for you. Nobody else gave bread from heaven. Nobody else gave water from the rock. Nobody else gave you law from on high. I provided for you. It says, though, when they grazed, they became full, filled, lifted up, and they forgot me. Just because it comes up again here, I just want to encourage us to cultivate a heart of thankfulness. This is why grumbling is such a serious sin. When you read on through Israel, Israel's history, and after the Exodus, it was their grumbling that cultivated unbelief in their heart. Because grumbling and complaining is a form of unbelief that sees yourself in an unplanned place, at an unplanned pace, with not the provisions you wanted or felt like you deserved or needed. And it's a response of unbelief that cries out, why me? Why like this? Why, why, why? Rather than humbling us and saying, God, thank you for everything you have given. Help me to trust you to give again. I'm not sure how grumbling and, un, yeah, grumbling and complaining works into your world, but it's a very easy thing to fall into, to constantly be murmuring. Murmur, 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 just before the Lord, rather than, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. This is why we're commanded, in everything give thanks. It puts sin to death. If not, it cultivates it. 
In verse 7, he's going to give five similes here as to describe the judgment that he's about to bring on them. So I am to them like a lion. I am like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast. There I will devour them again like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Hosea here gives the warning that God is going to come upon them through Assyria in the most horrific ways imaginable. He's going to tear them from limb to limb. Well, verse 10, Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers? Those of whom you said, Give me a king and priests. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him in my wrath. God's mocking. God starts talking smack here. Where are those kings you wanted so bad now? How'd it work out for you? Where's your bales now? Why don't you cry out to them? See if they're going to help you. How's it going? Not so good. God says you wanted, you didn't want Samuel because what was what was Samuel calling the nation to do? To holiness and repentance. We want a king like Saul because he's like us. It says it didn't work out well. Verse twelve. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. God's wrath has been storing up. It has been incurring interest. He likens Israel to um, a, a mother who, um, rather than giving birth and there being new life, to not, and it ended up costing the mother and the child life. You won't just come out from your sin. And then, really interesting, verse 14, shall I, I, I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So rather than delivering them from, from death and from the sting of the grave, God says, I'm going to give you over to it. Which is really interesting because where do we hear that quoted again? This is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, where because of the resurrection of Christ... The exact opposite is said. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? To where now the answer is, yes, you'll be delivered because of the resurrection of Christ. Where here, there's going to be no compassion that's going to come toward you, and judgment is going to come. Your graves are going to be full. But God, through Christ, is going to fix it. He's going to raise from the dead. Well, verse 15 and 16 Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come rising from the wilderness and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. God says... He is giving them a preview of the horrors that are about to come upon them because their lovers are about to turn on them. 
Assyria, who they look to for help, who worships the Baals, they're about to see them unleashed. And they're going to come and they're going to do ISIS sort of evils to the nation of Israel. God says, I have for so long cried out to you. I have wanted to be your provider and your protector. I put you in a land. I planted you like a vineyard. I I taught you to walk like a child. I've loved you. I've done nothing but good for you. But you keep running away from me. You keep running like that stupid dog that when you call it doesn't come back. You're like this stupid dove that's flitting around everywhere. He says, it's going to destroy you. I've tried to warn you. I've told you. I've pled. I've given you everything. And you don't want it. So now I'm going to give you what you do want. I'm going to give you Assyria. And he's going to give them over. And bloodshed comes. And their treasuries were emptied. And the northern kingdom was no more. In 722, when Assyria came and wiped them all away. But before they go, God gives one more final word of restoration that they can keep with them when they are out in exile with a reminder. And they can tell their children that one day God will deliver us and He will set us free. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. The final bit of restoration here. God turns Israel's apostasy into faithful allegiance. God turns Israel's faithless apostasy into faithful allegiance. God desires reconciliation here, and He's going to lay out the steps of repentance that Israel must take. So, in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see requirements for reconciliation. And then in 4 through 8, we're going to see uh, the results of, of reconciliation. Verse 1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. So finally, your lips are going to match up. Uh, Your your heart, your lips, and your offerings are all going to match up. That's what He says. I want that. Say to us that Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will, not, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. This contrasts a bit of what we saw back in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, where there's a, there's a glimmer of hope of restoration, but this is a full-hearted one. Return, he says here. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. When we stumble, this is again, this is one of the final times we're going to see this, this word showing up is in this section here. Stumbling is, is this picture. When you stumble physically, you come, you break stuff, you get torn up. Well, in the same way, when you stumble in rebellion, it destroys your life. You get hurt. Yet God calls them to return. Return shows up 16 times in this book, four in this chapter. Return, 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 return. Return where? To the Lord your God. Not just to a land, not just to a temple, not to some priesthood, not to sacrifices, but to God Himself. This is a personal reconciliation. Come back home to your husband who's been faithful to you. This is a call for intimacy. 
for love. And he tells them what to say to God. Take away all our iniquity. Confess your sin. Finally be humbled. Stop saying it's not a big deal. Stop saying nobody sees me. Stop pretending like you're not robbing one another and hurting one another and and, uh, rebelling against your God by having half-hearted worship. Come and be honest. Tell Him what you've done. Accept what is good. Pay with bulls the vows. Again, this is the, the bulls. Anytime you see it referred to that, this is the most expensive of the offerings. This is, this is, this is the biggest thing you could bring. It's a picture of, of, of a great need for mercy. But it's to be accompanied by faith always. Well, this, by the way, is is again pointing us to Christ, who's, who was the one who was sacrificed for our sins. right? God, what He wants is true repentance that finally comes back and says, Lord, this is what I have done. Forgive me. And we look to Christ who was atone, the atonement for us. Well, verse 3, profess three things you will do no longer. You will no longer look to Assyria for salvation. You're no longer going to look to military strength for hope. And you're no longer going to worship idols. These were the three things that Israel kept falling back into. Come and tell the Lord you're not going to do it anymore. This is why they fell away from the Lord. God says, come home and leave behind all the hopes of the other things. In you, the orphan finds mercy there. How, does Israel, how should Israel see herself? As an orphan. As vulnerable in need of of, of, of mercy and help and forgiveness. This has come full circle, hasn't it? The no mercy one is now hoping in God's mercy. The not my people one orphaned in sin is now hopeful of being restored into the family of God. What we saw in chapter 1 is now being fixed in chapter 14. Well, these are the results of reconciliation. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. He's, uh, yeah, his shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their frame shall be like the the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. The context here makes it clear that the Lord is the one who's, who's speaking. It's even, even with all of this poetry, even seems like a bit of a, a love song. So I, Dish, maybe you can write a song about this and we can sing, sing it. But um, God, is, God is speaking to His people as a lover would, painting before them, before their eyes, the ways that He desires to care for them. He says, I will heal their apostasy. Turning from God brings wounds, but God will heal them. This is the, he- the healing that if you remember back uh, in chapter 5, verse 13, Assyria couldn't give. God says, I'll give you the healing. Israel sought, sought it without sincerity in chapter 6, but God longed to give it in chapter 7. 
But Israel has been resistant, chapter 11. But God will heal, heal, heal them. God has pursued them. They can't heal themselves, notice. They need God to do this. And again, notice this, this restoration is intimate and personal. I will love them freely. He's going to actually forgive them to where He's not going to deal with them with a grudge. He's not going to just put up with them, always hanging over their, their eyes. Uh, remember what you did back that got you kicked out? He's not going to do that. He's going to forgive them, and He's going to love them freely. And verses 5-7, through seven, it mirrors a bit of, of low, uh, love poetry that you see, might see in, in the Song of Solomon. There's actually a whole lot of imagery that's very similar to the Song of Solomon. If you want to read that, that later, you'll, you'll see some of that. Um, but, but, but God is here, speaks of the, the dew back in chapter 6-4 of, of Hosea's fickleness. But here, uh, and also there in chapter 10, they had a blossom of, of injustice. But here... It's used as a picture of God's love and faithfulness that brings healing to them. He said, it is I, I am like this cypress fruit. Again, in a really almost scandalous way, God compares himself here to a tree. Now, why would that have been a little bit risky? For God to compare himself to a tree there with the cypress. Because what's Israel been doing? They've been worshiping idols and they're looking to the trees that they're making idols out of. And it's, one, one commentator said, God borrowed the enemy's sword to make his final thrust here. Israel's had this wrong view of the idols, and God says, I'm going to be your lover. I'm going to be the one who provides for you. Verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So this book concludes with a Proverbs-like kind of word of wisdom pointing to Israel the path that leads to life. That there is a narrow path, and it is the path of repentance and humility and pure worship. Don't go on the broad way that chases the idols and looks to Assyria and the nations and all these other things. Which again, all of this is intended to point us Ultimately, to Christ Himself. Jesus, the one who is the greater bridegroom, who comes and who lays down His life to win back a bride for Himself, who He will love and cherish and lead and care for and provide and protect. That even now, Jesus says He's building a place for us, a mansion in glory. And He says, I will come and I will get you and I will take you to be with me forevermore. That in that final land where all is well, we will be with God, sin will be no more, and forever and ever and ever we will sing of the love of the Lamb that was slain for us. The Bible in one sense is one big story of Hosea and Gomer. We are Gomer who wanders in our unfaithfulness. But God is a God of mercy who seeks, saves, and secures us to be His forevermore that we might know Him and love Him and enjoy Him. This is what the book of Hosea is intended to point us to, to Christ who fulfills all of this perfectly. Does anybody have any final questions about what we've seen in the book of Hosea before I get maybe some reflections from you? Any final questions about anything that we've seen right here? Yeah, Karen? Northern Kingdom 
is no, is no more, right? Because Assyria comes and gobbles them up. But, yep. then, but then when we go right back into 14, it looks like... Good. Looks like they're there again. Yeah. Yeah. So and I think the, the point of that, great, great question. So Assyria will be taken away, but it's not going to be an extermination of the, the northern kingdom. People will live just as slaves in Assyria. Uh, so what God is, is promising them is, is there's not going to be anybody in the land because it's going to get, they're all going to be taken away. But God is saying, while you go as slaves into exile, go with this promise that I'm going to bring you back one day. Does that make sense? Yeah. Similar to a couple of the other restorative promises. He's going to bring them back home and they will be his and they will know him. So yeah, for those who will repent and believe. Okay, then in conclusion, I'd love to hear any, any reflections from anything from today's session or from, from the whole book of Hosea that's been particularly helpful for your soul. Anything that you're like, you know, this was, this was good for me to, to hear or here's something that I need to think about more, study more, reflect on more. Anything at all that's been helpful. And it's remarkable how he loves his people and in spite of themselves. It's good. It's great. I just wanted to thank God, thank you, uh, and work through you uh, for bringing this to life. Uh, Friday night, Saturday morning in this area, dozens of things, such as the time of year, that we all could have been doing. But we came here and uh, we heard the good news. That bridegroom relationship is really how it is. I mean, we should be coming home every night. We should be spending time courting with the Lord. We should be going out with the Lord as you would in a relationship, as you would in a marriage, and uh, spending time with with our groom. Hmm. That's good, brother. Yeah, may the Lord give us a heart to see that and love that and pursue it. It's good. Mm-hmm. This is just so, so much the opposite of the unbelieving world view that there's no God, we're just here by accident, nothing matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much the opposite. God is very present and very personal and very worthy of worship. Yeah. But it's going to change, it's got to change your whole world. Like being His means everything's got everything's to go. Praise God. Thank you, sister. Yep. I'm thinking about how this relief process can be 
That's great. Yeah, it makes Christ so precious that in Him you're shielded from the judgment we deserve and all the promises of God are yes and amen in His and are ours because we're in Him. That's great, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah I was really struck by what you said, like how we should read the Bible in order to not sin, not to become smarter sinners. Mm-hmm. It's, I, you know, it's really, it's kind of easy in a sense to do that like in a negative way of like, oh, I was in sin, well, then I can look back and go, oh, well, yeah, I guess I didn't read my Bible then, and so mm-hmm. I guess that's why. But, you know, it's a lot harder, I think, to, you know, really to proactively do that to actually read the Bible and go, how am I going to take this and mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. There's just a couple more. Yeah. You know, I just, I was struck by, you know, the easier, softer way is God's way. And the world presents the illusion that that's the easier, softer way. And it's not. And we pursue it and get rebuffed and pursue it and get rebuffed and never fulfilled. And all we have to do is turn to Christ and, like you said, just, just spend time in the Word. And, mm. and this, this really makes me want to, you know, commune with God because mm. that's where the only thing yeah. That's encouraging. Praise God. Anyone else? Yep. I also thought, um, as you were reflecting even early, early on, helping us to think about, uh, yeah, just how we relate to God um, and how we often are quick to answer the question, how are you doing, mm-hmm. with reflections on what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, spiritual disciplines, circumstances that are happening around us rather than, as Karen just said, just That's good. I think that, that reflection there would be a good one for you to talk about more, about how, how do you gauge where your soul is and whether your things are well or not. Um, and a good resource for that might be um, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Just to look through when Jesus walks through the different churches, the things that he notices, the things that he commends, and the things that he calls out, and just seeing how he's measuring um, obedience and, and, and where people are. Good. Well, I've been encouraged by, yeah, by, by y'all. Thank you for your, your attentiveness uh, to God's Word. That encourages me. Um, yeah, and I think for me, studying this book has been, been several things, but I think primarily it's just brought to the forefront, once again, the, the, the personal relationship with the Lord and how precious that is. Um, it's easy to just kind of, yeah, just think of God as, you know, an idea that we're supposed to study or just learn more about, but that he really is a good shepherd and a faithful father and a loving Lord, and that there is a real personal relationship that should be cultivated um, continually and we should be thankful for, uh, and to see how prone I can be to, to just grumbling about just about anything, um, but how dangerous that is to take my eyes off of him who's faithful. So, yeah, may God give us help. I'm going to pray for us once more, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for these lessons that you've given to each of us. Thank you for things that were learned that were not shared publicly, but uh, we trust you will be working out privately. God, would you help us to be a people who love you? Uh, and Father, may we be yeah, warmed by your love toward us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.